Welcome to the Stony Plain Alliance Church Podcast. This episode is a special episode. It's part of our Listening and Learning Weekend on Indigenous Realities in Canada. Over this weekend, we were joined by a special guest, Reverend Dr. Ray Aldred. Dr. Aldred joined us from Vancouver School of Theology, where he serves as a director of the Indigenous Studies Program. We hope you'll take the time to listen and learn with us. Okay. What is a dream catcher? That was a question someone had. What is a dream catcher? So, a dream catcher is a. Well, you know how sometimes your kids have bad dreams and you go into their room and you. Maybe you buy them a teddy bear or something, and you give them that so they don't cry. That's what a dream catcher is. It was just because kids had bad dreams, and then they came up with this idea that this they would weave this little net, and it was about a and this net they would give it to the kid. They would hang it in their above their bed, and it would catch the bad dreams and let the good ones come through. So that was the idea of a dream catcher. It's just, it's like a teddy bear. Keep kids, I mean then people, they get superstitious about it and think it's more than that, but that's kind of what, what the whole thing was about, a dream catcher. But people have pretty, uh, people have some ideas about that. So, uh, I just got to grab some notes I have here. So then we were trying to hold together indigenous identity or spirituality together. But there was a lot of uh, superstition about it, like I said. I think I said it here. My problem is I speak so many places I start to forget. Did I say that here already? (laughs) Or was that another place? The good thing is I can just keep telling the same story and I don't know, it sounds new to me maybe. (laughs) And uh, one of the challenges was when we were bringing these things together is that you had to deal with a lot of superstition that people had about things, you know, because we tend to, I don't know, we, be, we get nervous about stuff. Even though anytime you try to change things, it, it, things happen. That's actually why we resist. We resist anything that's good for us, we resist. Because when you first start to try to make changes, that even if they're helpful, some negative things happen. Like if you exercise, you end up sore after a couple of days and you wonder why was this a good idea. And, Dieting, dieting doesn't make you live longer, it just seems longer. <laughs> and, and things like that. So, so then, we were trying to hold these things together. And we were looking for a way to do it. And we were thinking about how do, uh, how do you hold these things together? Because there was so much anxiety in some parts of the church about them. And, and they became, 
there's this, this idea became that somehow indigenous people were particularly prone to uh, demonic kind of stuff. That was, that was an idea that developed. That wasn't there at the beginning. When, when indigenous, when missionaries first came to North America, some of the, if you read their journals, they'll say things like, these people, these people are not idolatrous. They're not idolatrous. They worship one God, one God. But then it began to develop. I think mostly because by the time the Reformation happens, actually even before that, maybe in the 600s, in the 600s, heresy, now heresy's always been around. Heresy is when you're doing something that's, most of the church says, no, that's not a good idea, but you keep doing it. You're labeled a heretic, meaning you're sort of isolated yourself outside of the church. But there's always the opportunity for you to come back if you repent and come back. That starts to go away in the church. By about 600, heresy becomes this thing that is sometimes punishable by death. And people begin to actually look at heretics like they're not even believers. Early on, that's not the way people looked at heretics. They were still believers. They just had some different ideas. But then it becomes that they're not even believers. And then, and then the, by the time the Reformation comes and the development of the Protestant churches, Protestant looked at Catholics like they're not Christians. And Catholics looked at Protestants like they weren't even Christians. And you began to vilify one another. And then we've had all kinds of examples of violence within the church. One of my own wife's relatives in Northern Ireland, the Catholics and the Protestants, engaged in all kinds of violence against each other. And then, so it wasn't, this was a, this was a common thing that uh, one group would begin to describe the other group like they weren't Christian and they were even demonic. And they would demonize the activities of the other. And we were trying to overcome that. And uh, uh, one, of the, one of the ways that we tried to overcome it was we just, we tried to shift about how we thought about things and we tried to learn what different things meant. And uh, I I'd have tried to develop this, a different way of looking. It wasn't, it wasn't me developing, I just thought there must be a different way to look at things because a lot of the times when it came to things like whether or not you could have a dream catcher or whether or not you could pray with smoke, that was a one people were nervous about praying with smoke. If you're an Anglican or a Catholic, this is not a problem, you know. Bells and smells, this is like, <laughs> not a problem. <laughs> but for some folks, praying with smoke, this was a huge problem. Even though I think, you know, you can't really worship till you light something on fire. That's what I think. <laughs> so then, but this was a huge problem because people were convinced this was going to be idolatrous. Because there was this huge, there was this huge fear that people were going to be committing adultery. Uh, uh, idolatry, and that they were going to do something and that demons would show up. There was this huge fear of demonic activity occurring. 
And so then we were always trying to, so you had to sort of work against that. Or in, that was the, that was the thing we were sitting. One of the early approaches that some people had was, the, I call it the legal, the legal approach. And the idea was you would, the question you were always asking is, is it legal? And the language that people would use would say, is it biblically based? They would say, that's what they would do. Is it biblically based? But what they meant was, is this legal? Are we allowed to do this? And basically the arguments then, then it would just end up an argument. And the legal approach tries to marshal all of their evidence. Each group has their evidence. So what they do is they cut up the Bible and they bring their, that's where you get the proof text. And everybody brings their set of proof texts to prove well, what they're saying is legal. This is the law. This is what we're supposed to do. And I think the way it works is if you, whoever has the most verses at the end wins. I don't know. I think that's the way it goes. But no one's ever satisfied with that either. I'm not sure anybody on either side is ever convinced one way or the other. And I thought there's got to be another way to think about this. There's got to be another way to think about this. And uh, so then I just thought, and one way was from, in, so then I began to think, just think about how indigenous people perceived, how we perceive ceremony and what the whole, and spirituality. So for indigenous people, spirituality is just about how you live. That's your spirituality. However you live your life, that is your spirituality. And everyone has one. Not just indigenous people, but you have a spirituality. And you can tell what your spirituality is by how you live your life and how you treat all your relatives. That's how you tell how someone lives out their spirituality. And ceremony was always about helping to strengthen relationships. That was what that was about. And when I thought about that, then that helped me not to be so afraid of spirit, the word spirituality. But it was still a problem. In Saskatchewan to this day, if you say indigenous spirituality, they, that's synonymous with indigenous culture, which is synonymous with certain rituals, one of them being praying with smoke, and then people still are get kind of worried and uh, so then I thought, what if we shifted the language to think about story? How does it fit the story? Because the gospel, scripture, is a story. It's one great story. If you had to reduce it to a proposition, it would just be Jesus is Lord. That's, 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 what it's, that's what scripture is about. It's just Jesus is Lord. But it's just this story. And, and, and the, way that, the way that living on the land and the way that indigenous identity or spirituality works is at the heart of it, for me anyways, and I'm just, I learned this from uh, my elder was Andrew Wesley, who was a Cree speaker from... Fort Albany is where he went to the residential school. But he 
he said to me once, he said, look, at the heart of indigenous spirituality is knowing your creation story. And your creation story tells you how you're related to the earth. How you're related to the earth. So there's numerous creation stories. And different groups have different stories. One of the ones, Thomas King, in a book called The Truth About Stories, uses a particular creation story. I think it's probably from the Cherokee. There's a version of it though in, in Cree language and then they just so the way that the, the way that the creation story works is it tells you how you're related to the earth. So the one of the Cree creation stories is that Wisakisak, Wisakisak, he's some people call him a trickster, he kills a seal. He kills a seal. The seals get mad and they make they make these huge waves that flood the earth. And the creator said, Wisakisak realizes he's going to drown, so he builds a raft. And the creator says to him, you've got to fix what you broke. And so a beaver and a muskrat happened to jump on the raft with Wisakisak. And he says to them, he says, I need some, I need some dirt if I'm going to fix this. Well, what's that? Well, you know, if you dive to the bottom of the ocean, you bring me up some mud. That's what I need. So the beaver tries. The story goes on, but the beaver tries, and he can't do it. So eventually the muskrat tries, and he dives to the bottom about four times. Keeps trying, and the fourth time, this muskrat just floats up to the top, and he's just floating. It looks like he's dead, and he's like this. And Wisaki Shack says, oh, that's too bad. He was a nice muskrat. kind of liked him. But they bring him onto the raft, and then inside of his fist is this little bit of dirt. And uh, Wisakishak takes that mud, and he just blows on it. And it just gets bigger. And he just keeps blowing it until it's as big as this North America. And he puts it on the back of a turtle. And that's why they call it Turtle Island. It sits on the back of a turtle. And that's... So this creation story tells how you're related to the earth. The stony Nakoda at Morley, they have a sacred mountain, and their people came out of that mountain. That's how they came to be on the earth. And all these stories tell how they're related to the earth. And so I thought about scripture. That's where my thinking about creation came in. Doesn't, doesn't, the two creation accounts in Genesis, because there's two, right? It tells the story twice, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And, uh, and, uh, but they both tell how we're related to the earth, don't they? And so then I began, well, what if when it came to Scripture, what if we started to talk about how does it fit the story? How does it fit the story? And uh, I just started to think about that. I thought it would be a better way to think about... Because when you have this legal approach to Scripture, then you tend to cut up Scripture, and and then you have all the proof text. But what if it's just about the story? What if it's about the story? And so then I began to think about well, what, what does the story say? So then, I used an example like, when you pray with smoke, 
I don't know how many of you have smudged before. So you, you know what happens. You, you use either cedar, sage, tobacco, or sweetgrass, or a combination of those. And they're dried, and you put them in an abalone shell or maybe an old pie plate or something, and you just light them on fire, and then you get into the smoke. And the idea is that the smoke, if it's sweetgrass, they all smell nice, unless you don't like the smell of smoke. My relatives used to think we were smoking pot again, but that's not what we're doing. Most of the time, that's not what we're doing. <laughs> I can't speak for all of my relatives, but I wasn't smoking pot. So then, uh, and you, you, know, you get into the smoke and you basically, you know, you, you, you want to wash your, you bring it over your head because you want to think good thoughts and you want to, you know, your eyes because you want to see good thoughts. You want to see good things. You want to see the positive. You want to, you want to, you put it to your mouth. You want to say good things. You want to, and to your body, your heart, you cleanse your body and then you sum towards the earth and sum to the creator. And the idea was that it was, sim it was a symbol of prayer. And so then I created a case study, uh, a case study and I just thought, so what if an indigenous group said, you know, instead of doing communion, we're just going to pray with smoke during the communion service. How would, you talk with, how would you talk about that? And I thought, if you use the legal approach, then I could just see it, then people would say, well, that's not biblical. That would be the first thing. That's not biblical. And then they would start bringing out the verses. Usually it would probably be, you know, things about shouldn't offer unholy smoke or, you know, all those things. That's, that's kind of what would happen. Be not part of the world. Be separate from the world. You know, those kinds of things, they'd start to come out. But I thought, well, what if you ask the question, does it fit the story? Does it fit the story? And that would be a different set of questions because then you could have a conversation. Because the story goes that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, take, eat, this is my body that's broken for you. And in the same way after, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant that's in my blood shed for you. And then, you, and then I would say, so how does that fit? How does that fit? Well, one group, what they did is they uh, take the elements of communion, the bread and the wine, or the bread and the grape juice, and they just pass it through the smoke first. And then they serve the elements. So that's what they did. But that was an example of trying to bring those things together. It, it doesn't make everybody... The other thing you've got to be... You've got to realize it's never going to make everybody happy. You know, when you're trying to bring people together, when you're trying to do reconciliation, you're never going to make everybody happy. You're going to be like a referee. Half the crowd's going to be mad at you no matter what you do. So just know that. It's just, you're not, everybody's, in fact, somebody usually has to, it's going to take pain. No, no one else, you don't, you don't affect uh, reconciliation unless someone's willing to suffer, kind of. That's just what it costs. 
because people have strong feelings about it. So when, when, uh, I'm just looking for, there it is. When, uh, when the newcomers came and told people about the gospel, many indigenous people received the gospel and then they just began to um, they began to indigenize it. And they didn't know that you couldn't be fully Christian and fully indigenous. That, the attempt, the, the, this, the, the whole, the, the late 1900s with the residential school was when they were trying to eliminate indigenous spirituality. That's when it really happened. And even, sometimes even in the church, there were people in church-run residential schools who wanted to preserve indigenous culture. They began, some, some they, they, they wanted to let indigenous people speak their language, but the government then said, no, you need to make kids speak English or French. No indigenous languages. So they put, they put uh, that pressure on them. And so a lot of what I do was just to help people embrace who we are. So then, as I said, the sacred herbs are cedar, tobacco, sweetgrass, and sage. Those are medicines. In, in fact, uh, Jonathan Miracle has a song that uh, the, la the word for, in the Mohawk language, for medicine and for love is the same word. It's the same word. And usually, when you participate in, when you, when you take part in smudging, you usually take off your jewelry, your glasses. You take it off, and you and you enter the smoke. And the, whole, and the prayers are always done in four directions. So you, you usually you begin by facing the east or the south, and then you, and then, you know, the west, the north, and then down towards the earth, and then up towards the creator. And that's the, that's the sacred, then you've created sacred space. Usually when you face the east, you're thankful for the good things that come from the east. Because if you grew up in Alberta or Saskatchewan, the wind blows from the east in the summer, what's going to happen? It's going to rain. That's a good thing. So when you face the east, you think about the good things that come from the east. And then you face the south. Edmonton, Alberta, when the wind comes from the southwest and then there's that big arch across the sky, what does that mean? It's going to Chinook, right? Healing comes from the south. So you face the south and you're thankful for the healing that comes. That's how the prayer goes. And then you face the west. And when the sun goes down, who do you start? Don't you start to think about those who've gone on before you in the evening? I always think about them. Think about my mom, my dad all my relatives that have gone on before. So when you face the west, you remember your relatives. 
And you pray and you ask that you live in a good way. What happens when you feel that north wind? Right around Halloween, it's been warm and the wind starts blowing from the north. You know, you know what's coming. It's the hard things. The winter's coming. And you face the north. That's the mystery. The hard things. That you never quite know how to deal with them. You pray for wisdom when you face the north. And then you face down towards our mother, the earth. And you remember that we, everything we have, somehow comes through the earth. Albertans should know that. With fossil fuels, everything we have comes from the earth. And then you face up to the creator. And you see, when you've done that, then you've created the sacred space in the center. Which some of the, I think the Lakota call it, Wowakon, the sacred space. You're in the sacred space which they also believe, the Lakota also believe that's when you sit on a horse, you're in the sacred space. Because its head, its head faces up, its tail faces down. It has four feet that face the four directions. And when you sit on the horse, this is a healing animal. You heal there. That's the teaching, the sacred space. Most churches are designed with that in mind, and most church services, if you think about it, that's what they do. You, most of your music is about, it's about, you, you usually have an invitation to worship, and you're calling people from all the directions to come. And somehow you're thinking about everything, that you're connected to the whole. And I just thought, see, I'm trying to hold these things together. And so, but it takes time, you know. When we first started, when I told you a story yesterday, I told you a story yesterday about we had these set of drums, right? And they were safe because they were Yamaha. Japanese drums apparently don't call demons only. <laughs> and uh, so, so we had these drums, and we, you could have a picture of a feather on a drum in those days. That was back in the 90s, early 90s. You could have a picture of a drum, a picture of a feather, and that was okay. But real feathers were a problem. We've come a little ways now. Now you can have real feathers, and most people don't freak out anymore. So it takes time, you know. It takes time. The praying with smoke... You know, I still don't, lots of churches still get nervous. I know, I know if I'm going to pray with smoke, I never ask for permission anymore. Because if you ask for permission, then no one will want to say. And they'll just keep asking until they ask the janitor. And he'll say, no, no, no smoking in the church. <laughs> so, so then I just, I don't even ask anymore. I just do it and let, let the janitor deal with whatever he needs to deal with. And, But the whole idea, most indigenous ceremonies were all about affirming how we were related to all things, that we're all related. And I just found that in scripture it was the same, wasn't it? That we're all related. We're all related. So then most indigenous ceremonies, most indigenous structures even, are built around this idea that, uh, that we're all related. So then the the one of the ceremonies. There's a ceremony that actually, when you put up a teepee, 
one of the cool things is I got to learn how to put up a teepee. My mom was born in a tent on the banks of the Lesser Slave Lake, 1937, in March, March the 6th, 1937, right by Faust. And, but they had an outfitter's tent, if any of you know what that is. That's where they lived for the first six years of my mom's life. That's where they lived, in that tent. But a teepee, they were using those in, in Saskatchewan and other places, and they would live those, the Blackfoot people, they would actually right along the river there, the Bow River, they would in, right along whereabouts, uh, let's see, what's there? Bow, right downtown Calgary there, that's where they would winter sometimes. Uh, in, the, in Saskatchewan, they go down to Cypress Hills area, that's where many groups, would, and they live in teepees, and you would, the, the teepees were made out of uh, buffalo hides were sewn together. When you set up a teepee, there's a story that goes with it. When you set it up, you name the poles. Each pole you name. So then I remember I used to take this, I had a teepee. It, was, it wasn't a full size, it was like about 15 feet high, so three meters. And uh, I would take this teepee to high school and I, I told them, if you want, I'll come and set it up. So I, was t I took it there and I was with grade 11s and there was 30 of them and I, so I told this story about putting them to teepee. I said, we have to name the poles. So of course, high school kids being up there, I said, okay, let's call this one Bob. <laughs> and I said, well, that's a good idea, but no, that's not. You need to, you need to name the poles over a value that you think is important. So... Traditionally, the poles are named obedience, respect, humility, happiness, love, faith, kinship, cleanliness, thankfulness, sharing, strength, good child rearing, hope, protection. So then you name these poles as you put them up. And then you put the skin around. The last thing you do is you tie the skin to the last pole and you lean it up and you put it in place and then you unroll the teepee and then you pin it in the front. And uh, to keep warm in the winter, you have to have a fire going all the time. Anybody who's lived in a log cabin knows that too. You have to have a fire. little fire doesn't have to be huge, but you've got to have a fire going all the time. And... Uh, you know, when it's cold, that skin just gets hard like rock. You know, it's just hard. And there's a family living there, and it's cold. And it, well, you know, when you gather wood, you've got to go further and further out as the season goes along to get this wood. And they don't want to do that because it's cold out. So they say to themselves, I wonder if we just cut up a few of these poles I wonder if the skin, you know, the skin's pretty hard. So they, they decide we're going to cut up obedience and respect. So they just cut up these two, two of the poles. And they burn them in the fire. And here, the, it's so cold, the skin is still just solid. So, you know, they don't want to do the work of going out to get wood. So they said, well, what if we burn a few more? So they burn humility and happiness. Those are burned up. Hey, the skin's still, hey, it's still standing. We're good. They just keep doing that. When you, pretty quick, they only have three poles left. 
love, faith, and hope. And because, uh, you know, when you set up a teepee, you, you, you start with three poles. You tie three poles together, and then, when you, well, some people use four, but you just tie them up. And when you tie them up, the way that you tie them, when they go like this, that puts tension on the rope so it doesn't come loose. And uh, those are the three poles they have left. And they thought, well, what if we clip, cut these last three up? So they do. They cut them up and they burn them. And the teepee's still standing there. Teepee's still standing there. And uh, then, and they're thinking, oh, well, this is okay. But then a Chinook comes. It's January the 14th and a Chinook blows in pretty quick. It's nine degrees Celsius. What do you think happens? Why? Well, because all they have left is the shell. They've cut up all the... The teaching is, when you have a, a home, if you don't do the hard work of obedience and respect and humility and happiness and love and faith, kinship, cleanliness, thankfulness, sharing, strength, good child-rearing, hope, protection. If you don't do the hard work of making sure you build those things into your home, then you don't really have a home. You just have a shell. And when hard things come, it just collapses. That's the teaching of the teepee. And that's how spirituality works. You teach people how to live in harmony with one another. And that was the ceremony that I learned. I learned that in a, listening to a storyteller in the park in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, telling stories. We also use a talking stick. That's another ceremony. When you sit in a circle... There's some a legend that the talking stick, which you can use a variety of things for a talking stick. You can use a stick that you found outside. My wife likes to decorate them. She usually puts four colors, yellow, blue, red, and white on them with string and decorates it a little. And a talking stick is when you, and you sit in a circle and you're talking about something you pass this stick around. The only people person who can talk is the one with the stick. You can't talk until you have the stick. And the person who has the stick gets to decide who gets the stick next. That's the rule of the talking circle. Legend has it that it was designed when the Europeans came because the Europeans couldn't shut up. <laughs> They didn't actually know how to have a conversation, so you had to help them, so you, they got the stick, so they just know when you can talk and when you can't talk. And then, whoever has the stick speaks the truth at the moment in their personal story. That was the idea, that's how it went. No one else can interrupt but must listen. And the speaker chooses who will speak next. So that was the way that that, and that was a ceremony that you did. And the stick actually helps people to talk. It's quite an experience. People think they can't say anything, but as they hold that thing, something will come out. Something will, they'll talk. That was a ceremony. 
But we weren't satisfied just with sitting in circles. So I'm, I'm telling you this because, you know, some of them you probably can introduce a little at a time. Or some of them you might even do already. They might exist already in whatever cultural background you have. But the drums, the drum was a big, was, a, was hard for people. The big drum was, the big drum, so there's different sizes, but the big drum, that was for, traditionally only men sat around the big drum. But it's not one of those, it isn't a rule from the He-Man Woman Haters Club. That's a friend of mine, she's a theologian in the United States. That was, that's what she calls those guys who, their theology is that only men can lead and stuff. She calls those, those guys are part of the He-Man Woman Haters Club. And uh, the teaching is that men were pathetic. This is a common trope in indigenous spirituality. Men are kind of pathetic because they can't feel the rhythm of the earth in their body. But a woman can. So then the women felt sorry for the men, so they gave them the big drum. It's true. That's why only men sit around the big drum. Because they're pathetic. And so then, when you, when you sit around the big drum and you beat the big drum, you can feel the rhythm of the earth. See, because that symbolizes the heartbeat of Mother Earth. That's what the drum beat is about. That's the heartbeat of Mother Earth. And I like to think, this is the part that I added to the story, I like to think that it's because as a man you remember, you remember what it was like to be inside your mom's womb and you could hear her heartbeat. You could hear her heartbeat. That's why men are so lonely. They, can't, they don't hear their mom's heartbeat anymore. And when you sit around the drum, you see there's this connectedness that you feel. And you remember. And so then that's the heartbeat of some some people will call it the womb of Mother Earth, you know, the, the heartbeat of Mother Earth. And that's what the drum symbolizes. And then you you do the powwow. The powwow was actually for everybody. The powwow was for everybody. This wasn't it wasn't just my mom told me this. The powwow wasn't just for non-indigenous, it wasn't just for indigenous people. This was for everybody. This was, everybody got to go. You don't have to ask permission to go to a powwow. This, it's for everybody. Everybody in the community can go. Because they have dances for everybody. When they say this is an intertribal dance, that means everybody can get up and dance. And there's a giveaway dance that they do. Lots of powwows. And they have gifts that they, tradi they traditionally give to people who are newcomers. They're not indigenous, and they give gifts to them. And they do the dance. And it's a form of dance is a form of communication. First Nations dancers tell a story through their movements. And they're petitioning the Creator. It is prayer. They're petitioning the Creator for attention. Someone said, to dance is to pray, to pray is to heal, to heal is to give, 
to give is to live, and to live is to dance. So that's kind of the idea, that the dance is just part of creation. And it's, it's okay, it's, it's in the Bible, people danced. I'm not going to tell any dance jokes against Mennonites or Baptists. <laughs> and then there's a variety of songs that are done traditionally. One of the ones that they sing early in the power, they sing a flag song or an honor song. And this is to honor all the people who served, fought in the wars. And I just thought, well, that's a good idea, isn't it? Why would you be against that? So they sing an honor song. Everybody must remain standing to remove their hats. And uh, one of the, the grass dance, that's a young person's dance because it's very energetic. See, the, I don't do very energetic dances. The idea came in the plains for the grass dance was that the young people would stomp down the grass before people put up their teepees and camped and chase the snakes away, because they're, you know, southern Saskatchewan, there's the odd rattlesnake and stuff, but you wanted to chase those away, and so then it developed into a dance, and so you just do this grass dance, and, and it has a certain rhythm to it. And uh, how does it go? This grass dance rhythm goes, uh, <laughs> Yahweh ha, Yahweh ha, Yahweh ha, hey oh, Yahweh ha, Yahweh ha, Yahweh ha, hey oh, Yahweh ha, Yahweh ha, and then the, and then they dance, and each movement one way must be repeated the other way. That's balance. Everything has to have balance. You make a movement one way, you have to balance it. So it's all about balance. There's a great story because in most indigenous ceremonies, they want to always be inclusive of everybody. And they tell a story about there was once a lame boy. He had something wrong with one leg. And he wanted to dance. And they said, oh, you can't dance because you're lame. And so they wouldn't let him dance. But he danced anyways outside the circle. He danced anyways. And the people saw that and they felt ashamed. And so to this day, they do a lame boy grass dance. They honor this boy, and they dance as if one of their legs wasn't working quite the way the other one does, and they just dance that way because they wanted to remind themselves we should always be inclusive of everybody. Everybody's significant. Everybody has something to bring to the circle. Everybody has an important perspective on life. <clears throat> which, by the way, is how many of our groups deal with two-spirited people. Some people call them LGBTQ, different letters. But the idea was that they had a, in indigenous communities, they had a unique perspective. People were born who had a unique perspective. The idea of two-spirited, there would be a man who could see the world like a woman does, or a woman who could see the world like a man does, or both. And they thought, this is a unique perspective. 
that not everybody has. We should make room for this because the Creator put them here. There must be a reason for that. At some point, we're probably going to need this perspective to understand something. We don't know what it is right now, but we should make room for this because it's not the way that the most of us think. So instead of trying to cut away things that didn't fit, this is the idea of sacred. This viewpoint is sacred. We don't understand it. It's a mystery to us. But we don't just want to come out and say it's wrong because how do we, we just don't understand. So that's kind of how you, how those things, this is the, the teaching. Not everyone thinks the same way, but we try to have a conversation. Then there's the men's traditional dance. That would be something that if I was going to dance, that's what I do, because it's the more mature <laughs> men who do that. And it's just basically just... <laughs> and you might look up, <laughs> might turn around, you know. But it's just it's nice and easy. And then the woman's traditional is the same way. It was, you know, in the old days it was thought, even though, you know, uh, one of the negative things about uh, colonialism, the colonial period, was for some reason many people viewed anybody with color as being over-sexual. And this was applied especially to women. Anybody who was dark, had, they were thought to be hypersexualized for some reason when the opposite is true for most traditional cultures, there were more... So in the woman's traditional, the dancers keep their feet close to the ground because it's considered a little obscene to lift your feet too high. Not obscene, but just, you know, good, just good manners is to be in control. And I always find that fascinating, that people would ascribe things that are just exactly the opposite of what indigenous culture really thought was important and valuable. And uh, often the regalia will include a folded shawl over one arm and maybe an awl or knife case on a belt and a feather fan. And the beadwork reflects where the dancer is from. The woodland Cree from Alberta have the wild rose. That's why you have the wild rose as your flower. Because the indigenous people here, that's the beadwork that's traditional to Alberta, the wild rose. That's why Alberta's wild rose country. The jingle dress is cool because it comes out of Minnesota, but it was a healing dance. Most women dances are healing dances. Because women are seen as healers in the community. And uh, the origins of this dance is in Minnesota, there was a medicine man's daughter was very sick and in a dream, a spirit told him to make this dress and put it on his daughter. And they, would, they did four cycles around the dance floor. On the first cycle, she was, after the first cycle, she was able to dance a little bit. 
and then, or the first cycle, they just carry her around. The second one, she can dance a little. By the fourth, she's able to dance by herself, so it's thought to be a healing dance. And when they do this dance, it's for the healing of the people. And sometimes if they have a fan, an eagle feather fan, they'll lift it up, and that's a symbol for their male relatives that they're doing for healing. I find all this thing beautiful. I don't... Then there's the men's fancy dance. It's more modern and, and athletic, and they have to dance and jump. And the whole idea is that your regalia can never stop moving. And they carry a coup stick. <clears throat> a coup stick is something that you would hit your enemy in battle. It was considered more honorable to just hit your enemy but not kill them. Just hit him with a stick. And it was saying, I don't, I'm not afraid of you at all. So. And then the woman's equivalent is the fancy shawl dance. <clears throat> because as we've gone along, you know, women, there are women big drum groups. There's women who, this, a lot of it came out because of uh, women penitentiaries and correctional institutes that the women wanted to play drum and they had to play because that's all that were in there. So they, it's come, become a more traditional that there can be a woman's drum group or a mixed drum group. In fact, I know of one woman's drum group, they're called the Man Killers. <laughs> and then there's a hoop dance. A hoop dance just tells the story of creation. There's many other dances. You've got to go to a powwow. All indigenous ceremonies take place in a sacred circle. The prayers are always said in every ceremony. And they pray, we pray to the Creator. And the pipe ceremony, the whole idea of a pipe ceremony was that it was to include everybody. And by taking part, you were saying you belong to the circle, you belong to the community. You don't have to smoke the, the pipe, but when it's handed to you, you just take it and you turn it. Put your hand along the stem and then you just pass it on. But nobody gets offended. The sweat lodge. See, these are the ones that people get nervous about. The sweat lodge is what, it's places, traditionally men, it's all men who sweat together and all women who sweat. You don't have mixed, unless it's your family group. It's like a sauna. You, it's a place you go in there and talk about things. So then uh, when we did a s Christian sweat, we would... You build the sweat, the, 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 uh, the door faces east or south. And then you build a fire. The fire represents the sun and you put rocks in there. And you heat them. And then you get into the sweat lodge. When you go in, you usually fill a sweat lodge clockwise. And then the, the, people, the person at the door opens the door. He says, okay, give us some rocks. And then you bring in seven stones, and they put a little tobacco on them, and then they pour water, and then you sing a song. And uh, so the ones I've been in, the first song we usually sing, we're thankful for the Father. So we sing that song. We sing a song to the Father that we're thankful 
for all that the Father does. And then you call for seven more stones and you bring them in, you pour water, put tobacco, pour water on them, then you sing another song. And the second one, we would, we would sing that song and then we'd, we'd confess to one another things of where we'd fallen short. And we'd ask Christ for his forgiveness. And then we'd call for seven more and they'd come in and we'd, pour water on them, put tobacco, and then we'd sing a song to the Spirit. And then we'd ask people how we could pray for one another, what people were looking for, for prayer. And then we, we do things in four, so then you ask for seven more, and then you pour water on them, and you pray, we sing a song, and then we just talk if people had a vision, a thing that they were hoping to do, or what, anything at all, that fourth round. And then that was... That was, the, that was the sweat. We just, we tried to make it into a Christian sweat because it's a prayer ceremony. And uh, <clears throat> the vision quest was a traditional fast. When a person got to be around 13, 14 years old, then they would go out on a place, you'd identify a place in the summer, out in the wilderness that you wanted to go. And you would just, you'd, you'd plan that you were going to be there for four days, just a place in the wilderness. And you would, um, <clears throat> you, uh, you do a sweat first, and then you go. And you're there by yourself for four days. And what you're doing is you're seeking a vision that's going to define your life. You're, going to look, you're looking for your authentic self. You go there and you wait. The tradition is that on the, on the fourth day, the, or on the third day, the demons come. And you fight those off and then you get a vision. And when you get that vision on the fourth day, when you come back, you tell your elder what, what the vision was. And they tell you how to interpret that vision, what that means for your life. And that's what you were trying to do. And that was a vision quest. And in all of these things, the difficulty was, this was not religion. In the Cree language, there's no word for religion. Spirituality is just the way that people live out their relationships. And we were just trying to heal and be open to listening to how these things, we were just trying to hold them together. Because we thought if we could just hold them together that maybe we could somehow have a conversation that would help, help us. And so that's what we were trying to do. Uh, do you want, we've been going an hour, do you want to stop for a couple minutes? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So 10 minute break, stretch. There's still coffee. Yeah. And if you have any questions. Yeah, bring them on up. Yeah. And then I'll talk a little bit about more in the last one about that vision quest and how we use that to design a whole ministry. All right. Let's do it. Good. 
the oldest story I know. So here's the oldest story I know. So when the Creator was making all the... He's making all the animals. The first animal he makes is the rabbit, Wapus. And uh, he said, look at you. You're soft. You're gentle. He said, I'll give you 90 years for your life. And the rabbit said, I, th I thank you. But you know, I'm soft and gentle, but anybody could hurt me. 90 years is a long time to live with that. Creator smiled. He said, I understand. I'll give you 10 years instead. Thank you very much, said the rabbit. The next animal he made was the elk, Wapiti. And he said, look at you. He said, you male elks, you have those beautiful antlers. And you're proud. He said, you fight. He said, I will give you 90 years for your life. And the elk said, well, I thank you very much, but the truth is, is we fight all the time. That's a long time to live, 90 years. Creator said, well, I understand. I'll give you 10 years instead. Thank you very much, said the elk. And so the next animal he made was the wolf, Mahegan. And he said, look at you. He said, you can run for hours. You, you're cunning. He said, uh, he said, I will give you 90 years for your life. And the wolf said, well, thank you very much. The truth is, is we have to run for hours. Got to feed the family. And that's a long time, 90 years. The creator smiled. He said, I understand. I'll give you 25 years instead. Well, thank you very much, said the wolf. Well, the next animal he made was the bear. Mr. Haya Muskwa, the big bear. He said, look at you. He said, you are the most powerful animal in the forest. You go where you want to go. You do what you want to do. There's no one can stand against you. He said, I will give you 90 years for your life. And the bear said, well, I thank you very much. The truth is, he said, every year I got to eat and eat and eat. And I grow big around the middle and I waddle when I walk. And I don't, I don't see so good. He said, 90 years is a long time to live like that. And the Creator smiled. He said, I understand. I'll give you 25 years instead. Thank you very much, said the, said the bear. Next animal he makes is the porcupine. He said, look at you. Everybody respects you. You have those beautiful, sharp quills. Everybody respects you. I'll give you 90 years for your life. And the porcupine said, I thank you very much. But the truth is, everybody respects me because I have these prickly quills, but he said, they all know I'm soft on the belly and they could roll me over and kill me anytime they wanted to. And the creator smiled and he said, that's a lot hard to live than 90 years. That's a long time. The creator smiled. He said, I understand. I'll give you 10 years instead. Thank you very much, said the, said the porcupine. And then he made the chipmunk. He said, look at you. You run around all over, chatter away. You make people smile. He said, I'll give you 90 years for your life. And the chipmunk said, well, I thank you very much. The truth is, he said, 90 years is a long time to have people laughing at you. <laughs> and uh, the creator said, I understand. I'll give you 10 years. 10 years for your life. And the chipmunk said, I thank you very much. And then he made a man. 
And he said, look at you, you're pathetic. <laughs> he said, you don't have fur, you don't have claws, your teeth are dull. He said, you're going to have to learn by to live by wit alone. He said, you're going to have to learn how to live in harmony with everything. He said, that's a hard life. I'll give you 10 years for your life. <laughs> and, the, and the man said, what? 10 years? How am I going to learn in 10 years to live in harmony with everything? To learn to live by, you know, just to understand. He said, I need more time. The creator looked at the man and shook his head and said, okay. I'll give you nine years. First ten years, you'll be like the rabbit. Be soft. You need someone to look after you all the time, because anybody could hurt you. The next ten years, you'll be like the elk. You'll fight about girls, mostly. <laughs> and you'll fight all the time. And then you'll be like the wolf. You'll have to settle down and raise a family, and you'll have to run to feed them all the time. And then you'll grow like the bear. You'll grow big around the middle. <laughs> you won't see so good. You'll waddle when you walk, and you'll be hungry all the time. <laughs> and then you're going to grow like the porcupine. Everybody will respect you because you're old and grouchy and prickly. But they all know they could take you out any time they wanted to. And then the last 10 years of your life, you'd be like the chipmunk. You'll chatter away and everybody will laugh at you. <laughs> this is your life. And the animals are your relatives. Take care of them. Take care of them. That's the oldest story I know. <laughs> I like that one. I learned that one from a friend when we were at, you remember prayer retreats? If anybody was with the Christian Mission Alliance, you had to go on prayer retreats. We would go in Saskatchewan, in February, or in Man northern Manitoba in, in February, which was kind of a bizarre thing to do. But we would just drive out and we'd just stop, and then we'd just go into the bush, and then we'd make a fire and we'd just tell stories. And that's where I learned that story. So one of the things we did is we... Uh, the vision quest, the seek for a, seeking for authentic self. Uh, we designed this program about, it was called Inanimone. Inanimone was the feelings we have in your heart, the feelings you have in your heart. And I talked about it last night. But it was really about helping to find your authentic self. And uh, what you were doing is you were being in a small group and you had and you were telling what was really going on inside. And that's the place. And w the way that the session would work is you'd tell a story from your own story. And, and you'd just talk about what happened. And, uh, and then people would relate that to their story and they'd tell the story and then you'd reflect back to them what they were, what, what you were seeing in them. Because people had a lot of hard things in their life, hard things in their life. And you were trying to help people deal with them. So we designed that program. And the idea was that you would get a picture of yourself, picture of yourself, what your authentic self, your real self. And you, want, you just wanted to remind people again and again that God loved them and he likes them. And you just wanted to keep telling people that because we need to hear it again and again and again and again. 
And then, uh, so that's what we, we designed that program around. The other thing, uh, and uh, we were looking for a, a metaphor, an overarching metaphor. One of them was, so when we were doing this teaching with, uh, with uh, traditional people who didn't like the idea of the church, then we would use the vision quest. That's what we were doing. Because we, we did this training over four days. And uh, we'd use the idea of a vision quest. You were looking at your own story. You were seeking a picture of your authentic self. So you were trying to undo the distortions that you had in your life because of what had happened. And then, and then, and on the third day, the demons come. And typically what happens, whenever you do a retreat, on the third day, the, the people will mutiny. They'll start saying things like, this is stupid, why are we doing this? You know, and that happens all the time. I teach one-week courses, and that happens in every one-week course. At some point, the whole class will mutiny. So then what I do on the morning of the third day, I talk about group dynamics, and I just say, on the third day, usually the group begins to mutiny. And then a few people look at their shoes. <laughs> and we just talk through it. We wanted to be honest with people to what was going on, and we were just helping people to deal with things. To deal with things. To be who they're supposed to be. So, uh, hmm. so I'm torn right now. I'm trying to decide which way to go with the amount of time that I have left. I think, I think I'm going to do this one, so then continuing to go with the land. So, uh, as I said, if you, if you, if you translate, if the Cree translation of John 3.16, the word that they use for the world, in Greek it's cosmos. Like that's what it says in the Greek, the original Greek that it was written. It says cosmos. The cosmos. God so loved the cosmos that he gave his only son. And the word that they use in Cree is aski. God so loved the land that he gave his only begotten son. So, I was thinking I needed a theology of Mother Earth. Because I grew up, don't tell anybody, but I was raised a redneck. Because <laughs> I grew up in northern Alberta, and that's redneck country. And uh, that's, that's, that's probably why I like country music. I'm not much of a redneck. To be a real man in a redneck country, you need a pickup, a dog, and a big TV. And I don't have any of those anymore. I don't have a big TV or a pickup or a big TV. But uh, I just thought, man, what's this theology of Mother Earth? And growing up there, I thought, every time I heard the term Mother Earth, I thought, oh, good grief, that's that New Age stuff. What are they talking about? Mother Earth, good grief. But then I was thinking about the genealogy of Luke. And hey, we're getting close to It's the first Sunday of Advent this Sunday. And I was thinking, I was reflecting on Luke's gospel. In Luke 3, 23 to 38, is the genealogy of Jesus. Luke's genealogy of Jesus. And it says that Jesus was thought to be the son of Joseph, who was the son of... And it just keeps going. It goes all the way to Adam. You know, this comes right after Jesus 
has read. You know, this comes just about the time that Jesus reads in the synagogue Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then he says, these words, today these words are fulfilled in your hearing. And then he goes into the wilderness. And Luke wants to take the reader all the way back to Adam, because that's the last person it says, Adam, the son of God. In Luke's genealogy, that's the last. In Matthew, it goes back to Abraham. But in Luke's gospel, it goes, Adam, the son of God. I was thinking about that. But I was also thinking about Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary is the mother of God. I say that because it really bugs Baptists. Because <laughs> think about it. Mary, if Jesus, if creator and creation are in perfect harmony in Jesus, he's fully human, fully divine, that means when Mary conceives, in Mary, creator and creation meet in perfect harmony. In perfect harmony. In Mary. And I was thinking, man, I don't understand Mary. The reason I was thinking so much about Mary, well, one of the reasons, again, in the evening when you pray, if you follow the Anglican or the Catholic uh, office of prayer. I mean, any time, anytime people say you should pray three times a day, I just think that's not a bad idea. I don't, I don't know why you'd have a rule against that. So then, in the evening, you say Mary's prayer, Mary's Magnificant, from Luke 1, 26 to 38. You know, you just, you say that. And I was thinking about Mary's Magnificat. The reason I was thinking about Mary is because I was hanging out with a friend of mine. He's passed on. His name was Ed Wood. He was, well, he was from St. Teresa's Point. If you ever watch Ice Road Truckers, St. Teresa's Point is one of the communities that they would deliver stuff to on the ice road. That's where Ed was from. And he, was, he owned a series of lumber brokerages across Canada at one point. And every time I was in Winnipeg, I'd go see him. And we used to go watch Grey Cup. Grey Cups together. He was a big Winnipeg fan, and I was a Ryder fan, and we'd go and... And one time we were walking to the stadium, I think it was in Regina, but it could have been Winnipeg, and uh, we were walking to the stadium to watch the game, and he says to me, he says, you know what, I don't know why evangelicals say bad things about Mary. He said, because, he said, you know, Mary was Jesus' mother. He said, if someone said bad things about my mother, I wouldn't like that. He said, and Jesus is God. Why would you say bad things about his mother? That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And I thought, hey, you're right. Like, and so I, I was thinking about Mary. Mary's the mother of God. Mary's the mother of Jesus. And I'm thinking about the Magnificat. And I'm thinking... So who's, if Mary's the mother of Jesus, so who's the mother of Adam? And I thought, it's the earth. It's the earth. And when I thought that, I felt this, I felt this. It's, it's the earth. Mother earth. And I felt something. I felt an emotional connection to the earth. 
that I hadn't felt before. And I thought, wow. Of course, I'm a theologian, trained at Ambrose. Well, it was at Canadian Bible College in those days, and then Canadian Theological Seminary. And when you're preaching, when you're thinking through these ideas, one of the things you have to do is you go to think, you got to think, okay, this is a theology of Mary. That's what I'm, a theology of Mother Earth. So then you got to ask yourself, does anyone else, has anyone else thought of this? You know, because if you're, if you're ever preparing a sermon or a Bible study and you stumble along a particular interpretation and you're the only one to ever have thought of that, just think about that for a second. You're the only one in 2,000 years of church history who has ever thought that. Just let that sink in for a second. So I look at... So I look at... Well, first thing I do is I think Scripture interprets Scripture. This is just a good interpretive principle from the Reformation. Scripture interprets Scripture. Is there anyone else in, anywhere else in Scripture where the earth is depicted like a, a woman? Romans chapter 8. Paul says, creation or the world groans like a woman in labor. Mother Earth. I thought, hey, that's cool. <laughs> and then, and I thought, well, so maybe we can love the world, love the Earth. But then you've got to check it out in theology. So Irenaeus, I talked to you about him earlier. Irenaeus said, Irenaeus writes, he says, he says, as, as, Adam came forth from the virgin soil. So Christ came forth from the Virgin Mary, Mother Earth. And in Jesus, the incarnation, Jesus was fully God and fully human. Creator, Jesus represents God to creation. And he represents creation to God, which is what we were supposed to do in the beginning, that we were to represent creation to the creator. We were supposed to go forth and replenish the earth, fill the earth, replenish it. When it says have dominion, that word means to bring forth what is best from the earth. Because the word dominion is actually used of the greater light and the lesser light earlier on in Genesis chapter 1. That's the third time the word dominion is used in Genesis chapter 1. First, it's the, it refers to the sun, that during the day, the sun will have dominion or the greater light to draw forth what is best. And in the evening, the lesser light will have dominion to draw forth what is best. And then Human beings were to have dominion to draw forth what is best, to take care of the garden, which Genesis 2 tells us. He puts him in the garden and he says, take care of the garden. You represent me to the garden, to the creation, and you represent creation to me. It's the priest. And uh, Christ, Jesus, 
was the perfect image of the Creator. Remember in John, what is it, John 12? The disciples say to Jesus, show us the Father and it will be enough. And Jesus says, have you been with me this long and you still don't understand? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And yet, he also represents creation or humanity to the Creator. And he takes to draw all things into himself. And the image of God becomes our destiny, our future. And he is the perfect image of God. Just like we were created in the image of God, Jesus Christ is the image of God, the perfect one, fully human, fully divine. And he becomes our destiny, our future, in the now but not yet, as we are on our way to the resurrection. So... I'm thinking this is cool. And I thought, the reason I developed the, the theology of Mother Earth is I just thought it would be a different set of emo uh, emotions, would be something, another value, another resource that would help us to make decisions about how we're going to handle fossil fuel development, how we're going to handle farming, how we're going to... It would just be another set of resources to think through things. I wasn't telling people what they needed to do because people got to figure that out. In fact, I, when I speak with younger folks, I tell them, I don't know what to tell you. I'm, I'm going to be 63 in January. I, I'm not going to do much more in my life. I'm, I did it all. I can tell you some stories about what we did, but I can't tell you what to do. I, I dread the idea of being, can you imagine being 70, 80 years old, still telling people what to do? Gee, that sounds like too much like work to me. <laughs> I, there was a guy in Regina who used to say, well, you got to feel sorry for white people because they got to save the whole world. said firmly with tongue in cheek. So then, Jesus Christ is the image of God and the image of humanity. Then I just thought about this. So, so then, I thought about it for, and it helped me to understand what we're doing in church and what we're doing in, in the world. Uh, and looking at things in an indigenous way. Uh, and so then when we were looking for, <clears throat> when we were looking for metaphors for this healing workshop, I'd begin the whole week when we were doing four days of training. I developed this, I, I, used, the, I used the Eucharist or the communion meal. If you think about the communion meal, the communion meal is all about the life of Christ. In fact, when you get together, that's the whole point of getting together, isn't it? It's to tell the story of the gospel. And the, the gospel is that Jesus is taken, blessed, broken, and given. Just when you, like when you do communion, the elements are taken, blessed, they're broken, and then they're given. And that's our life. That's our life. So when we were meeting together to talk about the pain that we had experienced in our life, I would start off by talking about 
that we are taken and blessed. The first step in Christian discipleship is to realize that you are the beloved. You are the beloved. But then why don't any of us feel like that? Why do most of us not feel like Jesus loves us and likes us? What happened? And then we begin to tell the story about the hard things that happened in our lives, the trauma that happened. And we're broken. So we're taken blessed and we're broken. But I said, you know, the cool thing, Jesus is broken for everybody. Jesus is broken so no one else has to be broken like that. And he meets us because we're already broken. I said, never pray to be broken. That will happen in life. That will happen in life. But somehow Jesus meets us there. And so then we just talk about what happened. And the reason you talk about your story, about what happened, is because then you can meet somebody there. Because that's where they're living right now. And you're going there and you're trying to help them to see by telling your story slowly that, that there's a way that you could begin to move through it. And then in the small group, we would meet and talk about what, what happened because of what happened to us. What are the distortions? What are the, what are the vows that we made about ourselves? What would it look like if we undid that vow, if we let it go, if we loved with our whole heart? So we're taken and blessed and broken. And then to also help people realize that even though they have a whole bunch of pain, that Jesus still likes you. He still likes you. And that we could begin to heal. And that even though we're only half healed, because I'm only half healed, most of us are, that even though we're half healed, life would still be coming out of us. Because life came out of Christ, even though for all intents and purposes, it looks like he loses. It looks like he loses. He's broken and dies. And we're broken, and even though we're broken, life is coming out of us. We can still experience the love of God. We can still have love flow from us. We can still begin to heal. And life would come out of us. We're taken, blessed, broken, and then we're given. And the whole thing was to just help people, our people, my indigenous people, to see that we were like wounded healers. And if you think about it, in Canada, who are the people who call for reconciliation? It's indigenous people. The church didn't call for reconciliation in Canada. The indigenous people did. The church didn't set up the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The survivors of the residential school called for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission to be established to help move Canada towards reconciliation. And it was paid for by the survivors of indigenous residential schools. The proceeding from the proceedings of their settlement, that's what paid for the residential school the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It was indigenous people who had, one of theirs had been killed at Ipperwash. They called for the sacred assembly to seek a spiritual solution. It wasn't the church. It was indigenous people. Because we understand what it's like to be broken and what it's like to be in pain. 
And that's what we're called to do in the church. That's what Jesus did. He's taken and blessed. The first step in Christian discipleship is to realize that you are the beloved. That God not only loves you, but he likes you. And then to embrace our brokenness. And that Christ meets us there in the midst of our brokenness. And then to be given for the world. And that's... And it's beautiful in the communion meal. And the life of Christ, we see it in both the sacraments. You know, like in Mark chapter 1, 9 through 11, that's the, that's the uh, baptismal account in Mark. You ever notice that in all the baptismal accounts and all the Gospels that all three persons of the Trinity are there? You ever notice that? The Son is there. The Spirit descends in bodily form like a dove. And there's a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son. And Jesus baptizes the water. Luther, the reformers said, you know, what makes these sacraments effective, what makes baptism effective is the addition of the word. And here's the word of God in the flesh. Whose John's Gospel says, the word that was with God and was God, the word that became flesh is added to the water and Jesus is baptized. And his, the baptism of Christ becomes the baptism of Christ. And that's the baptism that we're about to. Creator and creation meet in perfect harmony in baptism. And this baptism becomes our recreation story. It tells how we're related to the earth. And it tells how we're related to the creator. Creator and creation meeting perfect harmony. And communion. And communion. We remember one of the things, someone talked to me at the break about, so what part of culture is this like, because some people still don't like culture. The hunt is part of culture to live off the land. And I understand that we live by our relatives giving their lives. Because we're related to all things. We live, our relatives giving their lives. And in communion, our relative has given his life. And we live. Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And this meal affirms the sacredness of creation. It's a very ordinary thing, eating. And this is real food, and somehow, in some way, becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Of course, that'll make everybody kind of nervous, you know, maybe. Someone asked a Lutheran theologian one time about consubstantiation. The Catholics believe in transubstantiation, which means somehow the body, the bread and the wine are transformed into the body and blood of Christ. The Lutherans said, no, it's consubstantiation. Con just means that both, both, they're both bread and wine and the body and blood of Christ at the same time. Someone asked the theologian, Lutheran theologian to explain this, so he does. 
And then the person who asked him, I don't know, probably, probably a Baptist, well, that sounds like magic. And the Lutheran theologian said, at least, at least magic. <laughs> now, I'm not saying how, but somehow, this ordinary food becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Creation and creator meeting in perfect harmony. A picture of the incarnation. Take and eat, this is my body, broken for you. Take and drink, this is my blood, poured out for you, for the forgiveness of sins, the new covenant. Take, eat, drink. And so then, our future is of being changed from image to image, creator and creation in perfect harmony. That's the goal of indigenous spirituality. That's the goal of Christian spirituality. And I always thought, why can't we meet? Or at least stand beside each other. And that's how I think about these things. And that's kind of what I do. Thanks.